0: Hey everyone. You're listening to the 107 podcast where we get together every fortnight and sometimes more often to talk about technology, business, and the humans in it. I'm your host, Ivan Stegic. We're starting off the new year with a retrospective. We published 29 episodes last year, which is slightly more than once every 2 weeks or as we say it here, every fortnight. That's a great deal of content, all of which was created by an amazing team here at 107. So let me begin with some thanks. I'd like to thank our transcriptionist, Roxanne, who works tirelessly transcribing the audio for every episode so that we can publish the text online in a timely fashion. Thank you. To Charlene, who edits each of the transcripts and comes up with the summaries, the links, the social media posts, thank you. And of course, to Jonathan, the producer of the show, who masterfully records, edits, mixes, schedules, uploads, and generally makes my life magically easy to record the show, thank you too. None of the almost 30 episodes of 2019 would be possible Without the three of you. So, we're going to look back and play some of our favorite excerpts this year. Before each clip, I'll tell you who the guest is, what episode it came from, and I'll try to set it up with some additional context. And don't worry, today's podcast webpage has links to the episodes, so you can always go back and listen to them all. We started off 2019 with our 50th episode. And who better to have as a guest than the very founder of Drupal himself, Dries Buttert. I asked him about how his role had changed over the years since starting the project and writing the initial code in his dorm room in Belgium.
1: You know, I think my role has evolved a lot over time. I mean, in the early days, I would write 100% of the code, you know, And um, I would spend a lot of my time building uh, Drupal.org. I would help run the servers behind Drupal.org. I would organize um, the Drupal con events um, or help organize them like intensively. And over time, I've scaled more and more, right? Like uh, Drupal Association would be one example of that as a, a step in evolving my role. Which you know put in place an entity, a non-profit entity specifically that could take over the organization of uh, DrupalCon, which now is I mean it's a serious event. It it, it costs a few million dollars to put on, <laughs> and takes a, a whole team of people to to organize. Um, same thing with managing our website and the underlying hardware infrastructure. It's now being managed. Um, you know, professionally by people at the Drupal Association and and again, also with the help of people in the community, just like DrupalCon. Uh, But these are examples of how I've scaled my role. Um, Obviously, on the technical side, you know, I went from being the sort of single core committer (laughs) to now having, you know, teams of core committers, you know, for each of the major releases. Having committees and task force around um, different aspects uh, of the project, like the, um, like a technical uh, working group that defines coding standards. We have release managers and product managers and framework managers, and you know all these kinds of roles to subsystem maintainers that are responsible for uh, different aspects of the uh, you know of of the of Drupal core. Uh, and so that's these are all examples of me scaling uh, my role over time, and we continue to make governance changes, you know, all the time, uh, and to you know scale the project as needed. I think I think that's the right thing to do, you know, as as projects or organizations get bigger, you need to do, you know, you you need to put the kind of uh, organizational structure in place. Um, you also need to scale the culture. Uh, of, of the project and so try to help with that um, through my keynotes uh, actually last year this time I, I helped write uh, Drupal's values and principles um, document that's a way to help scale our culture so you know takes a lot of uh, effort and different people to, to maintain and run the, the Drupal project today
0: after I had been to the Managed Digital Conference, I was enamored with Rob Harr's keynote and his leadership of a company called Sparkbox. His style is squarely focused on all the people that are connected to his company, whether that's current employees, clients, partners, or even former employees. In episode 74, that published in November of 2019, I asked him about this focus. I, I love the friendly disposition you have and how inviting you are. And it doesn't just um, extend to clients and partners and current team members. It also extends to Sparkbox alums. When when you gave your keynote at Manage Digital, I was really impressed with how you talked about um, kind of the wider Sparkbox community, not just the people that are working there right now, but people who have worked and humans who have been with you in the past. Um, what's your philosophy around that? And, and and how do you get those people together if you do?
2: My philosophy around all of this is I got into this for the humans. And I believe that we have to treat them well. I think that the your former employees are the ones that actually control your reputation and... You know I want to make sure that everybody leaves well and things end well for people. I think so much of how people view um the like a relationship and that's really what employment is is defined by how it ends and you know a perfectly good you know um, even successful relationship if it ends poorly can can feel horrible and can color the whole thing and that's not at all what I want to do. I I think that what we look for is for people who, you know, during at least a season, because there are seasons for all things, where our seasons line up, and that we can kick a bunch of butt together on projects. And that season will probably end, and that's okay. And I think that's really healthy to kind of think about life that way. That hey, you know, our goals lined up, and we did a bunch of great work together. And now our goals don't. We're gonna go our own ways. That doesn't remove you, that person right alum from our story. It doesn't take you know us out of their story. Like there's a lot of good stuff that happened. And why not respect that by like throwing a party on the way out? Um, and I think the other part that just is so fundamental is I can't talk about caring for humans the way that I do and believe what I believe and then only live that when it benefits me, when they're employees. And I think that's, that's, like, fundamental. If you really care about the people, then it has to transcend, like, when it m- makes sense, when, it, when, when, it's a, when it's convenient. So, like, I mean, I invite people to come in and talk to me about what they want to do next. And I've written, written letters of recommendation to help people find new jobs when they're current employees. Like that's you know that's all good stuff and like sometimes people grow well all the times we hope people grow <laughs> like that should be a common thing that we want out of people and like you know our alums are like they're part of our story and like I like we still I still talk to them like there is like if I end up in a city where there's a Sparkbox alumni and I haven't seen them in a while, seen that person in a while like doing dinner or taking them out or just saying thank you is totally commonplace.
0: Why do you call your company a studio? It's a, it's a subtle distinction from being an agency or a firm or a dev shop. Um, I think there's, you know, I think it's worth explaining and exploring.
2: Yeah. I hate the word agency because yeah, it, I do too. <laughs> it makes me feel like, think of like Don Draper. Um, With, like, the brown liquor sitting in his office, you know, smoking and, like, the whole power dynamic that comes with that. And I think that word agency has been overloaded a lot and doesn't make clients think of partnership. They have It thinks of, like, hey, we're going to throw some work over the wall and it's going to come back and you're going to be our agency, agency of record. Like, it's everywhere. Um, So I like the word studio because I think it speaks better to the creative problem-solving work that we want to do in partnership with our clients. And it invokes the right feeling of that.
0: Rob was one of the keynote speakers at Manage Digital. That's the annual project managers conference in Minneapolis put on by our good friend Lynn Winter. She was on the show as part of episode 56 in March, and at that conference, she was giving a mini keynote about burnout. So I asked her about it. She had some wise words to share with us. Let's talk about burnout.
3: Yeah.
0: How prevalent do you see that? Do you have any data to show? What, um, what have you noticed and what are you hoping to achieve with your mini note?
3: Yes. Yeah, so I've, I mean, in general stats, if you start looking at people across the industry uh, or across, you know, working people and then specifically across the industry, there's so much pressure um, and change of environment from like where is the line between home and work, you know, from working at home or having technology accessible all the time. Um, it's really blurred the line of when do you go home? When do you put things down? When do you turn off? Um, and it's becoming a problem. And, um, you know, honestly, this talk came out of my own personal challenges with burnout. But as I started talking about it with people, I heard these stories over and over and over. I'd, I'd be speaking at conferences and people would talk to me about how do you deal with this and how do you deal with that? And that it was all about boundaries and all about, um, you know, taking ownership of the path that you actually want to go on versus letting the path take you. And I, I think it's a thing that PMs deal with more in this industry because of maybe the role and how it's often positioned at agencies. So, there's a, what I mean by that is a lot of times it's not as valued as a developer, for instance. Like when you're going to hire, oh, we can get any old PM. They don't really need to be a PM. They can be anyone. They can do that. They're just scheduling meetings. But to hire a developer, we'll get a recruiter and it's going to be harder. Um and it's hard for different reasons to hire different roles, but there's just oftentimes that situation set up or um less responsibility or value placed on it. Some PMs aren't even allowed to talk to clients. They have to go through account managers. They're not given the responsibility or the value in that role. And so there's some positioning at certain places and then there's also that impact of like how you personally come to your role. And for me, I personally have an issue. You know, balancing, like, don't take on too much. And, you know, it's stop running in the hamster wheel kind of situation. So I um, had a kind of a career change back in 2017, and I've been really trying to force myself to step back and, and try to realign what are my goals in my career and what is my personal goals and things like that. And so since I've started talking to people about it, I've gotten, honestly, really a lot of feedback that has been positive as well as a lot of sad stories. So it's something we need to talk about.
0: In episode 66, from the end of July, I talked to Jeff Archibald, CEO of Paperleaf, about two articles he wrote, one about the false hustle and the other about the 60-hour work week. I asked him about what motivated him to write them. It segues from or into this article you wrote on Fast Company about the false hustle, right? How Mm -hmm. keeping busy is just a way of not getting things done. Um, And you've also written about humble bragging about a 60-hour work week is actually symptomatic of larger problems that you might have as a company. And I've talked to Lynn Winter um, in a previous episode about burnout, um, and it just seems to come up more and more. Like, we are trying to be... Um, cognizant of what we're doing, of what our employees are doing, so that we're not detrimental to our own mental health, and so that we're happy in the work we do, so that we have careful focus in work and life and, and home. Um, and so the question is, what motivated you to write those two articles, uh, the false hustle one and the one about the 60-hour work week?
4: The 60-hour work week one was just kind of a, it was a bit of a direct response to I don't know what I was exposed to and I'm what I'm sure virtually every listener and yourself has been exposed to as well through social media. And it just is that, that humble bragging, right? Like, Oh man, crazy week. Like finally, finally shutting the laptop down. It's it's 10 PM on Friday. And uh, it's indirectly talking about how, you know, important we are. And I'm totally guilty of this in the past as well, how important we are and how busy we are and how successful we are. But in reality, like, that's not sustainable you know it's um it's symptomatic of not having uh enough process in place or not having enough uh revenue coming in or you know just symptomatic of a of a host of potential flaws with the business model um so instead of bragging about it like it'd be great if we were bragging about like how everybody at our shop worked a 25-hour work week and I was super stoked and And we're hitting 30% profit margins and everyone's getting paid properly. You know, like that, those are the things we should be bragging about. And I get I get that at the start of, especially when you're starting a business, a startup or an agency or whatever, there is an inordinate amount of time that needs to be put in to kind of get to the point where you have enough clients and, and, you know, you can support bringing on somebody to help ease that workload. I understand that. But if, if it's continually what we're touting as success, then I think we have it totally backwards. And the, uh, the false hustle article, um, that was more just like, a, I suppose, a moment in self-awareness for myself uh, where I, I'm, I'm a productive person. I can get a lot of stuff done very quickly, uh, but I have a tendency to overvalue the volume of tasks I complete versus the importance of those tasks so you know I could sit down and crank out 12 things in a day but did it actually move the needle anywhere like I was working really hard and I was being really busy but uh you know it's it's the equivalent on some level of uh in that article the analogy I drew to like Sammy Sosa sprinting from the uh dugout to the outfield uh in bit like in between innings, but then jogging after a fly ball, you know, <laughs> it's the same kind of thing. And so like, for, for me, I just wrote that uh, more to remind myself that, you know, I need to make sure to understand what I really need to be working on what's truly important. And apply tools like the Eisenhower matrix to understand what needs to be done now versus what can be delegated and, and plan my week out a little bit better, or else you can get to the end of the week and think that you moved the needle because you did a lot of stuff, but it doesn't actually mean you have moved the needle.
0: How do you keep yourself on track for that? It it sounds like a great idealistic way of living and I would love to do
4: it myself, but how do I, how do I actually do it? How do you do it? It's it's relatively straightforward to be honest. It, it's a I suppose a series of of processes. So we use OKRs here, so objectives and key results. So uh, I set one or two objectives for sales and marketing, which is primarily my focus here for uh, every quarter, and then I list out the key results. If you just if uh, you're a listener and you're wondering what that means, just Google OKRs and you'll find a whole bunch of really interesting methods uh, and information about it, but I set out those key results and, and those are the things I really try to focus on. Those are, those are the things that are going to move the needle. Um, so I map those out. So if I have an objective to increase revenue for the next quarter, then some of my key results might be, um, you know, pitch three new projects every month. It might be a bid on one and a half million dollars of work, uh, you know, just kind of key results like that. So that's kind of where I start. And then at the start of every week, I have a reminder in my calendar and about a 30-minute window to actually plan and block out my week. And it says right in there, like, review Mm -hmm. your OKRs, figure out what you should be working on. And then I'll go through my calendar and I'll see what time I have available, you know, that hasn't been uh, booked for meetings or whatever else. And I'll block in time to focus on you know like this particular sales objective or this key result or you know this particular proposal that I knew is I know is due by the end of the week so for me those those OKRs ultimately are making sure I'm working on the really really important stuff that'll move the needle and then that weekly calendar reminder and the subsequent kind of blocking out of my time on a weekly basis is how I make sure that stuff actually gets done
0: how many companies have you worked for that have gone to the trouble of figuring out your own personal love language? Well, Allison and Chad Paris, who both run Paris Leaf, were my guests in episode 67. And in this clip, Allison talks about their company's values, gratitude, responsibility, integrity, candor, and excellence. Allie, what is G-RICE?
5: G-RICE stands for our five values. Um, And I do want to expand on that a little bit, um, what Chad was saying, because I think it's important to talk about um, using your uh, purpose and ambition statement and also your core values to make strategic hiring and sadly firing decisions. Um, I think by evolving our core um, kind of brand messaging and really like owning it and um, metabolizing it for ourselves, it strengthened our ability to make really strategic decisions about who we bring on our team. Um, And as a result, the, the conversations are so much easier. The, you know, um, making decisions as a collective are so much easier because we just bounce it off of our, our values, which are gratitude, responsibility, integrity, candor, and excellence. So that's where the G-Rice comes from.
0: How do you know when you're not living up to those standards and who's policing them?
5: Oh, I think we're quite self-policing team. Um, I think we, Uh, we're very open with one another and we really turn to one another to hold each other accountable. So if we feel like one another is kind of out of line with our our values, we're very quick to bring that up in a really kind and empowered way. Um, So there's not necessarily one person with the the, uh, policing badge on, making sure we're having these um, as our, our core values. It's really, I mean, I think... It's, it's somewhat easy, um, and I'll knock on wood as I'm saying it, it's, it's easy when you hire and, and fire um, for your core values because the, the teammates who are ultimately on your team end up embodying those values. Um, so it, it's not as much of a policing as it is like, a, like we're, we're a team doing this together.
0: I met Carl Smith at Owner Camp in Bend, Oregon in the spring. I went to this Bureau of Digital event not knowing anyone, but came home feeling like I had a new, intimate set of friends and peers I could talk to. In episode 63, I asked Carl how he planned to scale this wonderful thing he was in charge of. So I'm going to ask you what your daughter asked. How do you scale that good feeling? How do you make it even
6: bigger? It's tough, right? Because in a way, you're scaling intimacy. And Lori Gold Gold Patterson said that to me. Lori Gold Patterson uh, runs Pixo out of Urbana, Illinois. And we were at Owner Summit in San Diego a few years back. And she came up to me. She goes, you got a huge challenge. And I was like, what is it? And she goes, how do you scale intimacy? She was like, most of these people know each other because they met, but there are going to be so many people who want in and you're not going to be able to do events for everybody and all this sort of stuff. So now the, the goal is to find ways to do more stuff online and smaller groups, to have opportunities for people who have met in person um, to reconnect and for us to be the facilitator and the organizer and handle the logistics of that because we can do so much more online that as long as there is some level of in-person connection once a year, maybe twice a year, then the online supplements really well. Uh, So that's a lot of it. We can't just have events get bigger and we can't just put on more events. It's going to have to be finding ways using the means that we have and a lot of its technology to make sure that everybody's feeling connected more frequently and even voice over just you know pixels, right, even just like you said, it's so good to hear your voice, right. so having that happen, so we're working on an idea called bureau circles um, this we'll see how it could play out. We don't want to overcommit and, and then blow it. But the idea of eight to 10 people that we help coordinate that get together once a month, it's kind of like an EO. It's kind of like a mastermind, um, but it's super focused on what they do and their role. We we call them roll calls in the past when there are more people, but, but this idea of getting it down to a smaller group um, that is there for each other all the time. And, and one of the things, Yvonne, that spurred this was we have a biz dev camp. We have so many camps, dude, I can't even remember them to list them. <laughs> but bizdev camp, everybody said, don't do it. Nobody's going to share. Nobody's going to be willing to share. And, and we said it and when we brought people in. And the thing was, it sold out with like seven on the waiting list. And I told him I was like we 're going to have an optional show and tell on the final day where if you show up, you have to show you have to show your pitch deck or you have to show a presentation, or you have to show something. Um, but what was amazing was when we left that first bizdev camp, monthly call started it was It was just hilarious. They started their own monthly call and they they called it an accountability call. And uh, it is just unbelievable. And so that, that in a lot of ways, that's become the model for us as we're looking at how do we move forward to scale the intimacy. People have said, you know, compared to AIGA or things like this, I, I like the grassroots feel. And, and I like the idea that in those circles, there is somebody who connects with us but they're also at liberty to make sure that they're doing what the group needs so that we're continuing to support, but we don't have to participate in every single thing.
0: In 2019, 107 started to purchase renewable energy certificates called RECs and water restoration credits called WRCs for every full-time employee. It's our way of trying to offset the carbon footprint that the company creates by being in business. In February, for episode 53, Heather Schrock from the Bonneville Environmental Foundation joined me on the show. In this clip, she talks about the projects they're involved in and how they come about.
7: So um, I'll just start with water because that is, again, our more in-house um piece because the water projects that we support are all directly you know if we're going to create wrc's it's from a project that we we as an organization personally support and are putting some some energy behind whereas with offsets and recs we're on the retailer side of that relationship so we we do vet and and choose the projects carefully we we always work with um for recs there's a Greeny is the certification for recs, and then for offsets, there's several certifications, but we work mainly with four or five of them, uh, third-party verifiers, and um, we just like to have a nice array. Of, of those projects that, that we think people would be interested in. Um, you know, currently in our offset portfolio, we have various things from uh, landfill gas to forestry projects. We have an interesting marine project where that makes marine shipping vessels more efficient and also protects some of the sea life. So always some interesting stuff there. But the water projects, there's actually, and I'll send you this link later, we have a project bank on our businessforwater.org website. So we have a separate website uh, that uh, we send people to that really specifically uh, talks about our, our water stewardship uh, business engagements. And there's a project bank which we started because we were finding with water projects, it was getting a little more difficult. Whereas with carbon offsets and wrecks, there's, there's I mean, almost an infinite supply <laughs> But with water projects, it's a little more difficult to match the needs of the you know the funder or the person who wants to buy those water WRCs or, or buy that, that you know, invest in that type of water project, trying to match make between the funder and the project. It can be quite difficult, you know um, trying to get something in their region, something where they they have an impact, something that aligns with their goals and their uh, ideals around around what a water stewardship project should look like. so we started this project bank, and there's now several gosh dozens maybe on here water projects that are in various stages of development, so some of them. Are done. Some of them are in the middle. Some of them still need funding, have funding gaps. Um, but there's some great. If you go to that link, which again I'll send you later, you can see examples of all these amazing water projects. And again, we started this bank so that we could uh, solicit water projects from other organizations who have projects that need funding, and then so we can come in and help match make the funders to these projects.
0: That's wonderful. That's businessforwater.org. And we'll link to that in the transcript on our website. Uh, Is there one particular project that sticks out for you? Do you have a favorite? A
7: favorite water project? Oh, gosh, there's some really cool ones. So most of our water projects historically have been very much your traditional type water leasing type projects where we're buying water leasing rights to to keep the water in stream instead of uh, having it all go to irrigation. Those are very, very common types of water restoration projects, irrigation upgrades, things like that. Uh, We've recently branched out into more urban and green infrastructure type projects. So there's one that we're undertaking in Los Angeles, which is a green infrastructure project that's a, a collaboration with Los Angeles City Council and the Green, there's a neighborhood association and also an organization called Heal the Bay. And we're all working together to create uh, this park uh, that will be have also an impact on the neighborhood. It will be a safe place for people to play and to move, and there'll be fitness stations. But the park itself will serve as a water quality improvement project in the Los Angeles River watershed. So that's really exciting that we're going to be able to save hundreds of gallons of potable water that will serve this neighborhood, but also creating this safe and fun space for them to interact with, it's turning what was just a block that had nothing on it, that was just you know not a safe place to be, into something that will be um, a neighborhood gathering spot.
0: When Hans Björdal, CEO of Culture Foundry, attended a talk on conscious capitalism at South by Southwest, little did he know it would make him question everything he'd been taught about doing business. You can't just tack conscious capitalism onto a company. It must be baked into the leadership. In this clip from episode 64, I've asked Hans to give us a definition of conscious capitalism. Listen.
8: So, conscious capitalism is a model that uh, w- seeks to unlock the potential for social good and humanistic good in business. And not just do that as a feel good, let's have, you know, a, let's have a, you know, let's have a corporate giving program when we're done counting our money, but baking that Concept right into the core of your company and doing it in a structured way that actually yields better financial results at the end of the day. And that, when I was first exposed to this system, I was at South by Southwest. Uh, John Mackey, who was one of the founders of this organization and early champions and ongoing champion. Uh, was giving a talk about a book he wrote called Conscious Capitalism, and I'm like, this is interesting. It's a fairly aggressive assertion that the way we've been doing business in this country is wrong, and that we need to evolve it to, you know, fit this different And frankly, a more difficult model of how business should work, that it's not just profit and loss, that it's things about core purpose and things about stakeholder orientation, conscious culture, conscious leadership, that these things can be defined, that they can be to some degree quantified and that they can through research be shown to return, not just incremental better return on investment, but exponential Better return on investment. And, you know, the research around it, I think, is still emerging, still evolving. The ideas, um, you know, have really caught fire because the hunger for this in business is acute, right? And everywhere I come across it, uh, people who feel they have to take, they have to have one person at home and bring a different person to work that they can't integrate who they are with what they do. That's a fundamentally unhealthy place to be. And creating business environments where you can bring your entire genuine self to work and do that, hopefully, where there's some social good that comes out of that, that's a very compelling thing. And that idea has been around a long time, but it hasn't been super structured. Now it's getting more structured, and it's getting more structured through conscious capitalism, through B corporations, uh, through – you know, some of the work that Nick Hanauer's doing. He's a Seattle billionaire who's making a very aggressive run at redefining what successful economics look like. So a lot of people are approaching this idea from slightly different directions. Conscious capitalism was my introduction into that that approach to business. And you know, some of those tenets from the book I picked up directly and and plugged them right into Culture Foundry. And so it's um, it's been very useful to us in terms of how we want culture foundry to be. But I also think there's an imperative worldwide. I won't even stop at the, um, you know, at the borders of the U S but worldwide to really think about business in this way and very aggressively counter the traditional model that you only have an obligation to your shareholders and everyone else can take a hike, right? Every, everything else is a commodity, uh, this model is a broader stakeholder model where you need to accommodate clients, employees, partners, environment, community, and shareholders. But this is, you know, we're going to slice this pie up many different ways, not just give everything to the shareholders and leave everyone else holding the bag.
0: In my head, Jeff Geerling is the pie-dramble guy. So, getting a chance to sit down with him and talk about raspberry pies and how he's automated them and clustered them and bent them to his will was a lot of fun for me. In addition to being a lover of software and all things open source, he's also an author. In episode 77, I asked him about his latest book, and what he's currently working on. Now, in addition to all the hobbies you have, side projects and so on, you are also an author. Um, and I would love to hear about your latest book and the book that you've written on Kubernetes. Uh, what are you working on right now?
9: Yeah, so I I love writing. Um, I don't know how many million words I've written in my life on my blog and on other blogs and things. Um, but, um, I, I love writing and in, in 2013 or so, I think that was when I started, I, I've always wanted to write a book my whole life. I'm like, I want to write a book sometime. Uh, I think part of that was jealousy because my brother, when he was a kid wrote a book and his book, like, you know, the 15 minutes of fame, like his book caught fire and was a local, very popular book. He sold maybe 15,000 copies or something. It was pretty cool being the little brother to the, the brother who wrote that cool book and but i was also a little jealous like i want to do that too so um but i also just love writing i've always loved uh, english and literature growing up and i love reading and i love writing so um that i put that together with the fact that ansible didn't have a book in 2014 when i i started with in 2013 but in 2014 i'm like there's still no book for ansible and it's really popular so i decided to start writing it with a goal that i would write 100 pages and sell 200 copies and uh, it was funny because I, I, I started writing it on a platform called LeanPub, where you can publish it while you're writing it and sell it while you're writing it. And by the time I, s- I had written about 40 pages, I already had sold 200 copies. Uh, and then, you know, fast forward these many years later, it's uh, 2019. So it's been, it's been in, in print for five years now. And I now sell it on Amazon and other places. And it's called Ansible for DevOps and uh that book has sold over 22,000 copies and um it's now like 480 something pages including a chapter on kubernetes and a chapter on docker and uh a couple examples that do drupal um one of them inspired by the the raspberry pi dramble cluster so that was that was my first book effort and it went Incredibly well, and I was—I was floored. I, I don't. There's no word to describe. Like, when you're like, I want to do this thing my whole life, and this is my goal, and then your goal is like surpassed by like 50 times over, and you get to meet awesome people because of it, and it's just so many cool things happen because of that book. Um, it also was helped us in my family. We, we've wanted to remodel our kitchen, and. Uh, after writing the book and and making some profit off of it, I was able to remodel the kitchen like four years earlier than we thought we might be able to. So, you know, that's a huge change for our life because our old kitchen was kind of hard with three kids and and the way that we live our life and, and stuff at home, especially since I work remote and I'm at home all the time. It was, you know, we had an old cramped little kitchen and we were able to get it better. So like the book was just awesome. I don't expect to have the same uh, level of success, but who knows, you never know where it's going to lead. Uh, but I'm I'm working on another book. I actually just finished the first chapter uh, a few nights ago, and I, I have a structure for the rest of it. And I'm working on uh, examples and and chapters. Uh, the next book is going to be called Ansible for Kubernetes, and uh, you know maybe maybe if Ansible is still around in five years and there's another game changing cloud infrastructure thing, it'll be Ansible well, Ansible for that, and I'll have a whole series out. But uh, I'm working on that book, and I, I haven't published it yet. I probably will pretty soon, even though it's not finished. I'll publish uh, in progress updates on Leanpub, but both of those books, uh, if you go to Ansible for DevOps, all spelled out, or Ansible for Kubernetes dot com, those are the book sites, and uh, I've I, I love I love writing them. And and one of the best things about writing them in progress is, for both books, I've had a lot of interaction with the people who read it, and they can help me to like. If they're interested in something, I can write about that. Or if they are like, your example didn't work on my computer, I can improve it before I actually make a published printed version that that people will buy.
0: As some of you may know, I grew up in South Africa, only to immigrate to the United States at the turn of the millennium. As a result, my childhood friends are South African, and I was able to interview at least one of them for the show. Gareth van Onselen is a South African journalist, political analyst, and author who joined me for episode 78 right at the end of the year. We tried to stay clear from politics, but in this episode, I was all in. We mostly talked about South African politics, but in this clip, Gareth talks about former South African president Jacob Zuma and the parallels to politics in the United States. I'm glad now that I didn't read it back in 2014, because I don't think I would have appreciated it as much um, as I do now. And mostly it shocks me. It just shocks me how much of a parallel there is between Zuma and the current president here in the United States. Um, and I, I, at some points, I was reading the book, and I wasn't sure if I was reading something that was directed at Zuma, Or something that was directed at Trump. Like there's this one place in the book where you say he can fill a vacuum with empty rhetoric. But once it is all done, you're left wondering whether he has said anything at all. And and then you also go on to describe him as something of an ethical black hole. Um, how, How did such a man become elected? Like not once, but twice,
10: I would agree with you 100%. I think Jacob Zuma's tenure is a a brilliant template for what's happening in the U.S. with Donald Trump. I think they are very similar in a lot of key respects, not just in terms of the way in which they use or abuse popular sentiment to serve what is essentially an entirely personal political agenda, Um, but... In terms of the grand narrative of their entire tenure in office and how these kind of demagogues tend to affect the way in which society responds to them, I mean, what actually happened with Jacob Zuma, and I think it's not absolute, but in in a lot of ways very similar is happening in, in the United States, is essentially you get elected on a wave of popular appeal, which takes various different forms and has various different causes, but that's the outcome. There's some kind of populist zeitgeist that manifests and, um, you know, you're swept along by it if you're you're this demagogic leader. You are then – there's then a process of the shattering of the illusion, and that shattering doesn't happen to the opposition who never had any doubt as to your unsuitability for office. It happens to sections of your own support base – Um, the the nature of public office starts to reveal who you are the the demands of making hard often neutral and magnanimous decisions which you're kind of incapable of doing because you're demagogic and biased in a certain way start to reveal your true character Um, then there's some fundamental problem uh, either it a case of corruption or unethical behavior onto which your opponents then latch as a means to remove you from office. And it becomes a defining battleground along that particular issue. In the case of Jacob Zuma, it was his homestead in Kundla, this abuse of taxpayers' money. In the case of Trump, well, it's, you know, Russia and impeachment and the various things that go about it. But that becomes the mobilizing point. You then suck in all of civil society. And all independent institutions to help you deliver the outcome you want, the judiciary and so on and so forth. And how that plays out is yet to be known in the U.S. But you know that's the way in which this is, you know, the narrative tends to unfold. Um, and as I'm saying all of this, I'm realizing I'm going slightly sideways from the original question you asked me. But no, I've no, no. Bit, please keep going. Yeah, yeah. A uh, bit detracted there. Um, but I, that was just—I mean—you triggered a, a thought with regards to the overlap between the two, and I, and I think uh, Jacob Zuma is a is a real case study for Democrats and conservatives in in the U.S. to look at because the narrative is playing out in in hugely similar ways on a lot of different levels.
0: That's it for 2019. Thank you for listening to our little podcast. We're so glad that you join us as often as you do. We've got more in store for you this year and hope you'll join us as we continue to talk to interesting people from around the world. If you have a second, send us a message and tell us what you would like to hear in the coming year or just send an email to say hi. Our email address is podcast at 107.com. Until next time, this is Ivan Stegich. Thank you for listening.